This is the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 20th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. This week, we're going to look at a couple of things because one of them is a little bit bigger than the other. Uh, and the first going to look at will be the IRS did issue a clarification in an FAQ on section 139 cap A and back pay for wrongfully incarcerated members of the armed services. So we'll talk a little bit about that, what 139 cap A is and what the issue was with members of the armed services. Then we'll also talk about the fact that FinCEN has made some major additions to the FAQs on beneficial information reporting. So benefit ownership, beneficial ownership information reporting, get the title right. So we'll talk a bit about what's been added there. They've actually made a couple of additions. Uh, one set back in September when they added a new 56-page guide, and most of that's incorporated in the guide. But they've added some other interesting stuff here just recently. So I want to talk a little bit about what's over there and what maybe we want to be getting ready for, including one area that they interestingly decided to step their foot into the whole question indirectly on whether or not preparing these forms would represent the practice of law. And they don't really go after it, but they kind of go after it by suggesting where uh, those who are having trouble filling out the form would go for assistance. And that's, that's kind of an interesting discussion. So let's start out, though, first with this FAQ on the wrongful incarceration exclusion. Darius announced the addition uh, of this particular question to the FAQ in, in basically fact sheet 2023-26 that came out here this week in November. And what it is, section 139FA, I should say 139F, not 139A, provides in the case of any wrongfully incarcerated individual, gross income does not include any civil damages, restitution, or other monetary award, including compensatory or statutory damages, and restitution imposed in a criminal matter relating to the incarceration of such individual for the covered offense for which the individual was convicted. So this is meant to allow those who are wrongfully convicted, wrongfully incarcerated, uh, and who receive damage payments to be able to exclude those damages from income. As we've discussed previously, generally, whenever you get a damage award, you get an award, <laughs> it's going to be considered taxable income. That's just Section 61 would yank it in. We have the exclusion for physical injuries we discussed recently in Section 104, but this is a separate one for excluding injury, for excluding these payments that were meant to compensate you for being wrongfully incarcerated by the government. Now, the IRS issued an FAQ back when this, when this first got added it outlined the nature of the exclusion, who it applies to, and what it excludes. That was the nature of all of this. What they did this week was added a provision that deals with the situation where a wrongfully incarcerated service member receives back pay. And the question being, so, you know, you were, you were a service member, you faced trial in the service, you were convicted, you have served a certain period of time, Whatever came up, information came up that made it clear that you were wrongfully convicted. You know, let's say, in fact, that you were innocent. And so you end up getting out. That's always nice. Uh, but in addition, the service gives you your pay of what you would have earned had you not been in prison 
and had you continued working in your position with the armed services. So the question becomes, is that pay that you receive for that period you were in prison, you were in prison by the, uh, by the you know, under the armed services, is that considered to be a, you know, an amount that is excludable from income? And what comes up here, this is question nine added. Can a wrongfully incarcerated United States military service member who receives back pay following the reversal of a court-martial conviction exclude the payments from gross income under the wrongful incarceration exclusion? This is new question nine for the FAQ. The answer becomes no. And again, they reason a United States military service member who is wrongfully incarcerated individual and who receives back pay following the reversal of a court-martial conviction may not exclude the payments under the wrongful incarceration exclusion if the payments were, are merely the restoration of pay and allowances the service member is entitled by statute. Right? Had you not been convicted, you would have continued to have been paid by the military. So they're just restoring that to you. If you have a wrongfully incarcerated service member who did receive their pay and who you have excluded the amounts in prior years, they suggest you may want to file an amended return and report that back pay as income. Uh, I assume that they have had some issues arise. I assume that the service may be aware of such issues. And I assume the service is saying, well, okay, guys, here, here's your chance. You can go ahead and pay up now because we're telling you that we, you know, we, we don't see this as covered by the statute under 139F. We don't see that this is covered. So bottom line, you know, if you want to pay up now, that's fine. Otherwise, we may be talking to you. Now, the other thing, which is actually our bigger issue this week, is you know that we have coming up this year the Beneficial Ownership Information Reports under the Corporate Transparency Act will be coming up beginning in 2024. And by the beginning of 25, in theory, we're going to have filed reports for all existing entities. and we are going to also have, and they'll file for entities that are created in 24, assuming the 90-day extension continues there or becomes final. So everything except those created in the last 90 days of 2024 should have initial filings by the 1st of 2024. So the catch is that this program, which has kind of flown under the radar, and a lot of clients aren't aware it's there, uh, you know, we, we've had some guidance as to what to do. When we discussed back in March when the F, when FinCEN brought out their initial FAQ, we, we discussed that that was there, what's been going on. In the interim, we saw some additional guidance come out in September from FinCEN in terms of a 56-page document that is very, very similar to a, uh, you know, basically an IRS publication. Similar idea written for the general user to read. And what also happened is FinCEN has now moved that FAQ that existed as a PDF only. They moved that onto their website. And they, like the IRS, are now beginning to add additional questions and things get in there with new dates. We had a number of new items added on November 16th. And so we're going to talk a bit about what was in there based on that. Because that's much of the really new stuff. There is a lot, though, that went in. It really is interesting how much more has been added since March. Uh, in reality, they added in, this appears to be 
They, in addition to what we had in March, they added one set of information in mid-September, and then they added a few other things in late September. And now here in mid-November, they've added another set of items and probably are going to add some more as we get closer because, remember, we still don't have the actual filing information or how to do it. And certain things like FinCEN identifiers, they have information in the FAQ now. And they talk to you about it generally. But as noted, we still don't have the actual place to go do it. So I would expect the FAQs to get uh, populated with more information as we get closer. Now, a very interesting question, though, because they step into something, and th this is the first November change they had. It's new question B7. And we have this thing now divided into subsections that are lettered, and then we have a number for question for each. And this question wades into the area of unauthorized practice of law matters, or at least it suggests a FinCEN position. Now, before anybody says anything, I'm going to say right off that FinCEN technically doesn't have a say here, right? Unauthorized practice of law is something that is a state-by-state -state rule. Well, at least based on the case law we had under Circular 230 and the rules there, the courts have generally decided, the federal courts have, that while the states generally regulate practice of law, the federal government has its own right to determine who can practice before its agencies. Therefore, because of the existence of 5 U.S.C. 500, right, which is the uh, section of 5 U.S.C. 500B, as I recall, I think, or C, C, as I said, for CPAs. Uh, because of the existence of that section, CPAs are able to practice before the IRS and analyze law that relates to Internal Revenue Code because the ruling has been that the federal government has the right to set those rules, right? Their agency, their rules. The states aren't allowed to step on their toes in that area. Now, thing to remember is, though, that, that grant of authority at 5 U.S.C. 500 is only for practice before the Internal Revenue Service of the U.S. Treasury, not before the U.S. Treasury in general. We're talking about this FinCEN item. Unlike the FBAR, where FinCEN essentially delegated enforcement authority back over to the IRS, so far, that has not, to my knowledge, happened for the beneficial ownership report, right? FinCEN, the Treasury Department itself, is going to take on the enforcement issues primarily here. But nevertheless, they're going to step into the whole issue of what's going on, right? You're all aware that basically every entity that's not otherwise exempt, and that'll be almost every small operating LLC, every small operating or not operating, LLC, uh, corporation, limited partnership, limited liability partnership, other type entities, are going to have to file a report of their beneficial owners with FinCEN and keep that updated. And that's going to, the requirement's going to come in for those that are in existence by the end of this year. Uh, they will have to get their first report in by January 1st of 2025. Those created in 24 will have 90 days to get their first return in from the date they're deemed created. And we get to 25, those created in 25 and later will go down to 30 days. 
to have this done. As well, if any of the data changes, the, uh, the entity will need to get the updated data up within 30 days. And there are some rather nasty penalties for not getting it done. Up to $500 per day that, that you're out of compliance is the potential penalty you're looking at. So not a small penalty. So the question becomes, are they required to use an attorney or CPA? And FinCEN starts with a simple answer. Uh, you know, basically, no, you know, FinCEN expects many, if not most, reporting companies to be able to submit their beneficial ownership information to FinCEN on their own using the guidance FinCEN has issued. Reporting Now, this is where it gets more interesting, though. So that's the first line of this. So, okay, that's not really touching the issue. Uh, there is no UPL statute that tells me I can't handle my own legal issue personally. Right. It's just if I'm going out to get advice or get somebody to do it for me is where the unauthorized practice of law statutes or unauthorized practice of law rules come into play, the UPL. So that, that first sentence, not surprising. You could do it yourself. However, the next sentence is much more interesting. Reporting companies that need help meeting their reporting obligations can consult with professional service providers such as lawyers, now for the fun, or accountants. This is interesting that FinCEN stepped into this. Um, the real issue is it's not quite clear why they did. Now, some are jumping on this and saying, well, obviously it's not the practice of law. Look, they're telling us right now it's not. However, as I note, it's not technically their area to talk about. That doesn't mean I believe it is the practice of law. I, I think we have to understand some political uh, realities here. Attorneys have tried multiple times to limit the scope of CPAs and EAs in tax practice. This goes back many years. I mean, most of these battles were lost long ago. But you know, that those court cases all came out of Cirque 230, and the federal government has a right to authorize practice, and a state can come back and say, well, I know the I, I know the Fed said you could do this, but we're saying no way. Uh, obviously, the court said, nope, not going to happen. So Congress clearly had the authority to do this. And they got knocked down one other time. Uh, this goes back to the, to the prepared privilege. Now, I happen to think the prepared privilege is basically worthless, because one real problem you have with uh, privilege, if you're if you're account if you're legal if you're an attorney, is that privilege is only good for non-disclosed items, and there's been significant case law that generally, if an attorney is preparing a tax return for submission to the taxing agency, disclosure to the party that in theory you might have the legal dispute with, that's generally not considered to be something you can hide that data. Right, the backup work papers become subject to discovery because you weren't doing legal work, you were doing something else. And that kind of gets us into this general business work. And it also gets us into some uncertainty about the whole issue of whether merely preparing the form would be the unauthorized practice of law in this case. So I think it gets a little more interesting to go back that. But even if even if let's say some states tried to go that route. I think most most attorneys probably and most attorney groups realize that's probably a losing fight. They what happened, my understanding of what happened with that whole 
prepare privilege was that there were law firms taking out, you know, banner, you know, billboards on the Beltway was what I understood in D.C. Advertising, you know, don't 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 have your CPA firm do the, uh, you know, do, do your estate planning, etc. You want to have somebody with privilege do it. Now, again, similar problem because, again, you know, they're they're doing it. And if they're preparing the 706, it became a lot more iffy that the law firm could really insulate itself well. Get into long discussions on that, but it's it's definitely an exposure in that realm. Uh, in any event, how much greater it was, well, Congress got tired of that and just said, oh, forget it. So they passed this bill. I think if attorneys really decided they wanted to, which I, I know very few attorneys even want to touch these things, but if they decided they wanted to be the only place you could come for this, I expect Congress would slap them down yet again. So it's not, you know, it's kind of a losing game. But still, it's there. Now, I do agree, though, that if we get out of a case that's nice and simple, like, you know, the vast majority of LLCs, LLCs, small corporations, etc., they probably have an ownership structure that is very, very simple. There's one or two shareholders. I mean, I think about my own accounting firm. You know, there are three of us. We own shares in it. We're the officers. Uh, our, our BOI report's not going to be that difficult, right? It's going to be fairly simple. For beneficial ownership information, it's going to be very easy to turn in. Um, you know, it's just not that involved. And that's true of most of our clients. You'd be looking at the same sort of basic thing. You know, there's one shareholder or two shareholders and they own all the shares. There, there's no kind of oddball structures and people who are who are agents and some who are holding it and we're hiding the owner. We don't really know the owner. You know, we don't have those type of structures. So most of this is fairly simple. And I think, I doubt that most counsel want to be doing nothing more but having those crazy updates, uh, which remember, once something changes, you've got 30 days to fix it. Uh, and that, that that type of reporting to me seems unlikely that A, anybody's going to worry much about it, and B, uh, that if it actually push came to shove, I'm not sure they're going to win the day by having that as practice of law. However, if you're talking about actually setting up a new entity, or you're talking about trying to figure out how to move ownership to hide the fact we don't want to report somebody that we don't want to be listed as having owned these shares, that I think is going to get way more into the practice of law problems and potentially get the CPA, if they get involved in this, in uh, some potential legal hot water, not just for UPL. I'm talking about conspiracy to basically commit money laundering or assist in that and various other issues. So I think that's a little different, but I did find it funny that they thought, hey, let, let's just step into this. Also, we have a few other questions here. Uh, are certain corporate entities, such as statutory trust, business trust, or foundations, reporting companies? Right, that's a question. And the answer is, perfect answer, it depends. The real world remember is if a domestic entity such as statutory trust, business trust, foundation, it'll be a reporting company only if it's created by filing a indictment secretary of state or similar office. And like they said, a foreign entity is a reporting company only if it filed a document with a secretary of state or similar office to register to do business in the U.S. 
Now, the problem is because they use that reference to state law, they note that state laws vary on whether certain entity types, such as trusts, require filing of a document with the Secretary of State or a similar office to be created or registered. If you do are required to file that document, you are a reporting company and have to file one of these reports. So as they note, if a trust is created in U.S. jurisdiction, that requires such a filing that's a reporting company unless an exemption applies. Similarly, not all states require foreign entities to register by filing a document with Secretary of State or similar office to business in the state. If it does have to file a document, then it becomes a reporting entity. You know, entities should consider also consider if any exemptions to reporting requirements apply to them. For instance, a foundation may not be required to report beneficial ownership information depending on the fact if the foundation qualifies for the tax exempt entity exemption. That's one of the things also to remember. And they refer you to Chapter 1 of the FinCEN Small Entity Compliance Guide to see if you have to file. Now, then they go directly. Is a trust considered a reporting company if it registers with a court of law solely for the purpose of establishing the court's jurisdiction over any disputes involving the trust? And there the answer is no. Because again, the issue is registering with the Secretary of State or something similar. Registration with a court of law to establish the court's jurisdiction does not make the trust a reporting company. Now, that doesn't mean it isn't, because if it otherwise had to register with the state, it's going to be a reporting company. But normally, it's not going to have to register with the state, so normally, it would be a reporting company. Number six, I've had this question a couple of courses. Is my accountant or lawyer considered a beneficial owner? It notes that accountants and lawyers, and generally mean outside accountants and lawyers, do not qualify as beneficial owners, but that may depend on the work being performed. This is where it gets more interesting. Accountants and lawyers who provide general accounting or legal services are not considered beneficial owners because ordinary law arms length advisory or other third-party professional services to a reporting company are not considered to be substantial control. In addition, a lawyer or accountant who is designated as an agent of a reporting company may qualify for the nominee, intermediary, custodian, or agent exception from the beneficial owner definition. However, if the individual holds a position of general counsel in a reporting company is a senior officer of that company and is therefore a beneficial owner. And I would say similarly a, a CPA. And the concern I have is when you're basically selling CFO services. Because remember, a CFO is also a senior officer. If you have the power of the CFO, even if you are not technically, you know, an owner of the company and you're just the outside CPA, but you're you're basically an outside CFO, you very well may be a beneficial owner. That that's really the question of your duties is going to determine if you are a beneficial owner or not. Now, the other one, because people confuse tax issues with with this all the time. The tax issue generally doesn't matter except in limited cases, but that, that brings up this question. Is a reporting company's designated partnership representative, it then also says, or tax matters partner, but we really shouldn't see that anymore, a beneficial owner. The partnership representative, that comes from the uh, Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015, the uh, new centralized partnership audit rules we work under. So if you're appointed partnership representative of the partnership, does that automatically make you a beneficial owner? And again, the answer becomes, it depends. I think to be direct, we're going to say being a partnership representative, you know, just it's that, just that wouldn't tend to get there. 
but such people tend to have other powers, and those other powers may get you to being considered to be a beneficial owner. As noted, uh, partnership representative uh, is you know is not automatically a beneficial owner of the reporting company. However, it may qualify as a beneficial owner if the company, the company exercise, if that individual exercises substantial control over the reporting company or owns or controls at least twenty five percent of the company's ownership interest. You'll test the other rules. Could some rights under the partnership representative be used to help determine if you have, let's say, that substantial control? Presumably, yes. But just the powers a partnership representative has given by the IRC wouldn't by themselves be enough. It's a restricted to certain very special case. And they reference it a chapter to a FinCEN small guide to figure out what that means and how it's going to work. Now, it says, note that the partnership representative or tax matters partner, certain role of designated agent reporting company may qualify for the nominee, intermediary, custodian, or agent exception. Just remember, the partnership representative doesn't even have to be a partner in the partnership. They don't have to have any other tie in the partnership. They could just be a random person off the street, for all that matters. Normally, they won't be, but they could be. In which case, then, yeah, they, they might not have any other relationship until and unless such time as error starts an exam. And again, they reference you back their small T compliance guide. Question E4 is dealing with the odd case of a company applicant. Now, company applicants are those that essentially apply to create the company. And there can be up to two of them. And the up to two is primarily to cover law firms. The Company, the company applicant is the person who actually physically filed the document with the Secretary of State or equivalent office in the state, territory, Indian tribe, whatever, you know, the, the U.S. entities that can form these things, or the individual at that organization that did this, you know, created this entity that supervised the job. So in a law firm, you know, your client goes in, we're going to set up a brand new LLC. Uh, the client calls their attorney. Attorney says, fine, I'll get the documents drafted up. As part of forming the LLC, they go ahead and they send on to, you know, they go ahead and they, they get this form done. And they probably get this filing done by having their, you know, paralegal handle this. You know, they don't really need to do that. So the paralegal will take care of getting the Secretary of State to issue the entity, get this stuff together. That's who'll do it. Both of them will be issued as comp company applicants. Now, the question is asked, okay, let's say that, that I have my attorney do it. I have my attorney do the LLC. And a year later, I get mad at the attorney. I fire that attorney, and I bring in a brand new one. So now that attorney and that law firm has nothing to do with my entity longer. The question is, can a company applicant now be removed from the report if they no longer have a relationship with the reporting company? So, you know, and probably this is more of interest to the law firm, can this law firm that now no longer has any relationship with, you know, my LLC, could they require us, or well, are we even able to take their name off the report? And the answer is no. I mean, it's a good news, bad news thing for a company applicant. Company applicants are the one category of, you know, individual that we have to report on. 
that we don't actually have to report on any changes. But that means also we don't report a change of status and they have nothing to do with the company anymore. Right? Regardless of whatever happens, that company applicant will stay with this LLC or corporation until the dang thing, you know, disappears entirely. It's totally liquidated, dissolved, and gone. That's how this is going to work. So essentially, you don't have an updated report and you don't report when they leave. That's not something you do for the company applicant. F6 is a question I also have gotten quite a bit. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Because, I mean, it to me, if, if you pay attention, you know, when you start listening or you start reading about it, it makes sense. But we are so geared to annual reporting that we just can't understand why there's not an annual reporting requirement. So this question is, is it required to annual report the information? And the answer is no. There's no annual reporting requirement. You file the initial report. And then you found updated or corrected reports as needed. So it is possible you will need to file. You know, you may file this report this year, and you might go four or five years and not have to file another thing. Or conceivably, you could file the initial report, and before a year is up, have to have filed five additional updates because different things changed, right? It's not an annual report, so there's no annual report. This is why if you're especially in tax and you're going to be handling the reporting or assisting your clients in the reporting, you got to realize you can't wait till the year in meetings, right? Requirements are going to be 30 days after a change. That's going to make it a more difficult engagement to manage. And there's going to be, to be a very clear communication with the client that if we are to manage that, you are going to need to get us data and not on day 29, right? We need the data. As soon as the change happens, we need to be told. Otherwise, we're not responsible if you end up late. And that's how to work. Uh, they, I, I love this. How can I obtain a taxpayer identification number for a new company within 30 days so you can file? Well, they remind people that if you're going for an EIN, uh, you know, basically, uh, you, you, you can get that information from the IRS, right? And EIN can be done online automatically. So the EIN is not really a problem. The problem is with some of the other things. A paper filing is required if a foreign person does not have an individual tax identification number. According to the IRS, obtaining the number through that process could take six to eight weeks. If you're at Foreign person who may need to obtain a EIN for a reporting company recommend applying early for an ITIN. Foreign reporting companies that are not subject to U.S. corporate income tax may report a foreign tax ID number, etc. Uh, yeah, if you work a lot with uh, foreign individuals, individuals that will not have, you know, U.S. information, will need to get the ITINs in place. Yeah, you need to plan around that because. They don't really offer you an option to ignore it. Uh, they don't really tell you what to do. They just say, hey, you better get this done early. G4, when we're filing this initial report, do we include historical beneficial owners of a reporting company or only owners at the time of filing? So let, let's say we, we have a corporation. Let's take my accounting firm. My accounting firm was incorporated back in the 70s. And there have been, I'd have to run a count, 
let's see, three, four, five. Yeah. There have been eight owners over the years. Uh, actually, nine owners over the years. And I believe, yeah, nine owners over the year who theoretically, had there been BOI reporting, would have had to have reported, you know, at some time. The question is, so when we go to file our initial report, do we report just the three of us right now? Or do we have to go get data for all nine people? Some of whom have not been at the firm for decades. Some of whom have passed away. Right, you know, do we have to get all that data or do we only report on the current owners? And the answer is an issue report should report the beneficial owners at the time of filing. You notify FinCEN of changing beneficial owners and related beneficial ownership information through updated reports. Right? We don't need to have, you know, we don't go have to go get the data from day one. So, you know, we don't worry about all those prior owners uh, who we'd have to go find information on and just dig it out. You know, in, in my case, I guess the good news is I think all three of us were there at a, at a time when all of those owners were there. There was never an owner there that was there at a time we weren't there. So it was kind of weird. So we wouldn't know who they are. But in terms of could we find data on all of them, that would be interesting to try to dig up the data if we had to do it. The good news is we don't. That, that's not a problem. L4, if I own a group of related companies, can I consolidate employees across those companies to meet the criteria of a large operating company exemption from the reporting company F definition? Now, this is an interesting question because in the rules, they cross-referenced the Affordable Care Act regulations. And those regulations did consider uh, consolidating related employers to come up with the 50 employee amount. And so the obvious question was, well, does that mean that, uh, you know, we'd use that same consolidation? And therefore, even though this entity only has four employees, that because the ACA testing group would have had, you know, 25 employees, that this one with four, the other one with 11, you know, let's say another one with 10. That that we could then not, they all they could all be exempt if we also had more than five million in revenue in the group. Could we treat them as all exempt entities? And the answer is no. You do not do any sort of consolidation of employee counts across multiple entities when counting employees for this purpose. That's probably a little surprising to some people from the initial rule because you thought barring the ACA, you should be able to use the ACA count rules and. What's also a bit confusing is you are allowed to aggregate revenue. So if you have a consolidated group, which is multiple entities, uh, you can, in a consolidated group, you look at the consolidated group for the $5 million revenue. So this answer is a little surprising. I think a few people be taken aback about the fact they went down this path, but they did. Uh, we do have, they tell you about the exemption, and they tell you this November 16th item. So this could change a few things. I think a lot of us had been assuming, well, look, they add, they allowed us to group all these things together for the revenue test. So obviously, can't we group them for employee tests too? No. Not, not allowed to do that. Uh, how do you report to a FinCEN 
How does the company report to defense and the company itself is exempt? Uh, you don't, it does not need to report that it is exempt if it has always been exempt. If, however, it file, it does have to file initially and later qualifies for an exemption, then there is a method to file an updated report in case newly exempt. Right. Uh, goes through secure filing system. And in this case, you'll only require the entity to identify itself and check a box saying we're now exempt. So you basically have to log in and say, I'm exempt now. You do have to do that within 30 days after the date you become aware that you've, or you become aware, or should become aware you meet the exemption requirements. That, that's the key test. Now, a couple of other things were added in late September. One interesting one. They do say that they, we don't have any details on it yet, but they are working on a way to allow third parties to file these reports on behalf of the, uh, the individual entities. So a CPA firm or a law firm could take that on. And also there is an API being developed so third-party software vendors can interface. And definitely there have been reports that I've heard reports from multiple people that Thomson Reuters and Walters Kluwers at least are working on trying to get some sort of reporting system in there that they could handle that reporting. So you might want to keep up with that, keep your eye on what's going on there. Also in the FAQs, you're going to find information about the FinCEN identifier. Still don't have any place to go sign up, but apparently on January 1st to 24, if you want to use a FinCEN identifier, you can set one up. You don't have to. We don't yet have any mechanism for sure about how you could take yourself out of that if you went for one that said, you know, maybe I don't want one. Uh, they claim they're working on a way to get us out, but they don't tell us for sure how to do it yet. So just be aware that until they tell us for sure we can't do it, you might be a little concerned about going in and can't get out. But it, it would seem a very effective way for an individual concerned about disclosure of their personal information to all these entities that are going to file because they're going to be beneficial owners of them. Uh, the FinCEN identifier would like not have to provide them with that data. You just provide that data directly to FinCEN. But if you do that, you do become responsible for update, keeping that updated. That is a requirement that the facts make clear. So in any event, keep up on that. Like I said, I just found it interesting that FinCEN just... Treat it like it's it's absolutely makes, you know, who who would think that advising a client about how to fill in this form is practice of law? Just like it doesn't even seem to occur to them. That whole discussion that I've heard CPAs beating around ever since the start of the year was like a total non-question to them. So that's interesting. As I would say, I have heard a lot of attorneys who made it very clear to me that they don't want to do these, right? They'll, they'll do the initial one, but they don't want that 30-day deadline bit. Because they know clients won't tell them either. So that whole bit is interesting. Well, this has been our tax update for the week of November 20th. Uh, next week, probably, I mean, I should be able to record something. The question is, will there be anything to record? Because, again, we're talking about a very short week here heading into Thanksgiving. But we'll see what they come up with. Maybe something will happen. Something of note will go on. Uh, we'll talk about something, I guess, next week regardless. In any event, I do monitor the uh, Connect sites for Arizona, Nevada, or not Nevada, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, right, and Washington, and also keep an eye on Idaho, so if you're posting there, fine. Otherwise, you can email me, edzollowcarefultaxdevelopments.com uh, if you have any questions, and if nothing else, 
We'll see you next week as we look at talking about whatever happens new in the area of current federal tax developments.